graduated from Auburn University. He went north for a PhD all the way up to Vanderbilt. <laughs> Served in the U.S. Army, taught in high school and college at graduate levels, and uh, recent years has devoted himself to independent research, writing, and historical. Uh, he's produced 14 books, 500 articles, and so on, some of which we've published in our publications over the years. He's a good friend of ours, and we're anxious to hear from him on the subject of the bashing of George Washington. So, Dr. Clarence Carson, please come up. <clears throat> President McManus, members of the council, Bill Cherry, good to see you, Bill. I never seen Mr. Keith on Buster Kirk, but good to see you. I just want to get out in front right away that uh, I'm not going to bash George Washington in case you <laughs> I'm thinking that I, I thought about as, as I came, I go back a good many years to a few of those meetings. I think I went to my first one in Atlanta where I'd had dinner with him at Hans Sennholz's house. And he said he remembered it. I don't know if he did, but he said he did. Larry McDonald was there. Some of those no longer with us. And I went to Sandestin, a meeting in Sandestin. And uh, I know I saw our president here uh, at that meeting and Bill Cherry, I think, yeah. And his fine wife and, uh, oh, of course, <laughs> Mr. Rocco and many others of you. It's good to see you and be among you again. I've got an ad in here somewhere. I've got some books out there and... Uh, He's told me that I'll sign them if somebody will buy some of them. They're outside, and I'll be out there sometime if you can catch me. And now my wife told me the last book I had wrote was going to be the final book. But it got out, and it's not. But I, 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 I was going to say, though, that in, in connection with our president, Clinton, I'm talking about, it seems to me... Somewhere along the way, I heard that Clinton was worried about his place in history. Well, I'm a historian, and I've already written a book that places him in history, in part at least. If you're interested in it, it's called America in Gridlock, and it's the sixth volume of Basic History of the United States. So I've taken care of that, at least in part. I'm always interested in this notion that history is going to decide something or other. I got news for him. There ain't no such creature as history in that sense. Historians will decide individually and so on, and they're not going to agree on it either unless they've changed since I knew it. Just find you a good one. That's the only thing I say. <laughs> no no self-promotion going on there. Of course not. It's my pleasure to say something about the honoring of George Washington and whether we should or not in these days. And this is a part of a, a broader subject uh, to say, I'd observe anyhow, that we live in a profoundly anti-historical, ahistorical age where people know no history, want to know no history, and are opposed to what we've got. Black-baiting hate-mongers work victoriously in movies and television, vigorously, not victoriously, work vigorously in movies and television to dra dramatize and make exaggerated presentations 
about what things were like in other times and what was done to other people, and particularly as regards the black, to arise and keep alive animosities from the past. I know of no other purpose of much that they produce. And I'm pleased to take the other side of the case here for a moment, and as far as I can, keep to the history of the matter. A few weeks or a month or so ago, you may have noticed that a black majority of the Board of Education in New Orleans voted to rename George Washington Elementary School. I don't know what, some other name. And the uh, black columnist Leonard Pitt says that the school board had a policy against naming schools for slave owners. Well, George Washington was a slave owner. That's a fact. That's, that's granted. During most of his life, he remained a slave owner until his death. And that, these are facts. Now let me state a much more important fact. We do not honor and never have honored George Washington because he was a slave owner. If that had been what he was down for, he wouldn't be in our history books. We would, we would take no account of him, as, as, as a matter of fact. We no more honor him for being a slave owner than we honor King David of old for being an adulterer. We've got to get these things clear in our minds and keep them clear. So that's not what should be at issue, his slave owning. It was a fact, and I, I know of no reason. I, I believe, and I'm, I'm going to submit a few evidences to that effect, that we honor George Washington for his great achievements in the founding of the United States, for his unmissable taking us through the war for independence and staying with it from before it officially began until it was over and then stepping down and saying, I'll return gladly to Mount Vernon. And during that whole time, he said, he said from the beginning, I'll take no salary for this. And he didn't. Paid his expenses. Would you believe there have been people who looked over his expense accounts and think maybe he didn't really make every one of those expenses the way he said he did? Now, I, this is historical study, yeah. He has been remembered and honored for, in broad sense, helping to establish our independence, being a most important cog in the wheel of establishing our independence, for his leadership in the Constitutional Convention that made the Constitution of 1787, and for his establishment of the government under the new Constitution on the firm foundation of the Constitution of the United States. In every one of these things that all Americans, black, white, whatever color or flavor, owe a debt of gratitude to what George Washington did and accomplished. Now, I'm going to go on and prove offer some other evidence. You know, one of the things we've heard, I heard this years ago in school books or from somewhere, it said, well, the founders adopted the Declaration of Independence but they ignored its noble sentiments thereafter. Now, this is a completely ahistorical statement. It does not apply to these men. Uh, there were some men, I guess, who signed the Declaration of Independence who didn't accept those sentiments and who didn't work to bring those sentiments in the Declaration of Independence to fruition. There may have been. But by and large, in the years following the Declaration of Independence, in the 1780s, 
an ongoing strong movement was afoot to get rid of slavery in the United States. And it was led by these same, uh, these same people and under that impetus. And so that's the first thing I want to say. I want to say, first of all, that George Washington, I want to emphasize again, that George Washington led us to independence, to getting our independence recognized from Britain. And as soon as that independence, or even before that independence had been established, within the states, the movement toward either abolishing slavery or reducing its impact or gradually getting rid of it was well underway, and I'll submit some of the evidence for it. Washington, if we're talking about his part in this, his part primarily was as a soldier, as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the Continental Army. That was his role in setting the stage for these events rather than directly, visibly participating in them. He was quite busy with affecting the independence. But within the states, there was an ongoing movement. One of the things that was done in Congress before, after uh, independence, but before the Constitution was adopted, was the passage of the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance dealt with the states of the old Northwest, which would be called now the upper Midwest. The Northwest Ordinance prohibited slavery in that territory. That was an act of the Congress of all the states. He's saying they ignored it. An act of Congress prohibited slavery in those states. That was the most general act that took place during these years. Now, in 1776, immediately in the wake of the Declaration of Independence, Delaware was what they called a slave strait. Delaware prohibited the importation of slaves and removed restrictions on manumitting slaves. Virginia, in 1778, another slave state, Washington's home state, outlawed the importation of slaves and, and permitted the manumission of slaves, the important uh, act. Maryland, another slave state, in 1783, passed similar provisions to those of Virginia and Delaware. In 1780, Pennsylvania prohibited the importation of slaves and provided that all... I, I love this provision. Provided that all children born of slaves after that date would be free. You, you're looking for a way out of something where there's a great deal of property and a great deal of capital invested somewhere, a way out of it that will do minimal harm. And uh, Pennsylvania showed that pattern. In Massachusetts in 1780, the Supreme Court held that the new Constitution of Massachusetts abolished slavery. And so it was over in, for Massachusetts. In North Carolina, in 1786, they levied such a prohibitively heavy tax on imported slaves that it was difficult to import them anymore. And Virginia made it a crime punishable by death for anyone found guilty of selling a freed Negro into slavery. Now, these are all things that came in the wake of the Declaration of Independence and either during the time when we were establishing our independence or thereafter, and I would say that... George Washington and his armies did a lot to provide the uh, framework for it. But what about Washington himself? As a slave owner, what did he do? Well, all the evidence I've seen says that, first of all, he was a model man in his treatment of those slaves that he had. Now, what did he feel about slavery? He expressed himself on any number of occasions, and I have no reason to doubt it that ended by the 1780s, he had decided, along with many of his countrymen, that slavery was something that should go. He uh, 
wrote to Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, in 1786, and he says, There is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. There is only one proper and effectual mode by which it can be accomplished, and that is by legislative authority. Now I'll return to this point later on. And this, so far as my suffrage shall go, that is, as far as what he can vote and do, shall never be wanting. In other words, he'd give all the support he could give to legislative authority to do it. And a few months later, this is again in 1786, he wrote the Marquis de Lafayette, his great friend from the war years, wrote to say that he was buying a plantation in, where was it? French Guiana. It was to be a place where liberated slaves could make a living, could work. And Washington said, wrote, and I'm quoting him, would to God a like spirit would diffuse itself generally into the minds of the people of this country. But I despair of seeing it. Some petitions were presented to the, to the assembly, that's in Virginia, of course, at its last session for the abolition of slavery, but they could scarcely obtain a reading. And he goes on to observe, to set slaves afloat, that is free, at once would, I really believe, be productive of much inconvenience and mischief. But by degrees, it certainly might and assuredly ought to be affected, and that, too, by legislative authority. Now, of course, you say, well, Washington had no authority and special authority at state level. That's true. But Washington was very conscious, as most of the early presidents were, that, and indeed down to the last president before Lincoln, that the raising of the abolition of slavery issue to the national level would provoke possibly war, dissolution of the United States, or other things. Because I should get something historical in here. In 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. I don't know that we want to oppose inventions, but it would have been a great blessing if he had waited some while to do it. I was just that word. Because the cotton fastens slavery, the growing of cotton. Cotton produces. There weren't very many before that. After the invention, they spread, and it became, slavery became deeply fastened on the lower south and in the interest of the does in the lower south. And so what could have been done perhaps earlier, after 1793, became harder and harder to do. And that we have to take into account when we're talking about it, and that's historical. So don't blame the Thomas Jefferson. He didn't like slavery either, though he had slaves. Don't blame the sentiments of the Declaration of Independence. You want to find something to blame, blame the cotton gin. Well, they <laughs> Not really. They did that during the war, however. Civil War, I mean, the war. Of course it was a civil war. All right. Or the War for Southern Independence. Yes, good. Okay. What about Washington and his own slaves? Well, after the 1770s, or in the, during the course of the 1770s, he vowed never to sell another slave unless the slave gave his permission to be sold. He said he couldn't stand the notion of people being put up there and sold like cows. And as far as we know, he didn't sell anymore during his lifetime. He tried to think of what he could do to end slavery in his own domain, and he finally concluded that he would take care of it in his will. And he did. He had a wife, and as happened, he didn't know that, but he predeceased her. And so he made provision that at her death, his slaves would be freed. Now, he wasn't just going to turn them loose out there. He said that 
All the able-bodied slaves, grown able-bodied slaves, they would be freed, and it would be expected that they could make their own way. The older slaves no longer able to work, and the children who had no parents, he would make provision for. Uh, the children were to be taught to read and write, prepared to work in some trade to take care of themselves. This from funds that they would set up for this. And actually, Martha freed the slaves before she died, and the fund was set up, and it continued to pay pensioners until 1833. Maybe there are better ways, but finally he acted on conscience and did what he could. So I'll say in conclusion, George Washington should be honored. He should be honored because of the great work of his life, benefited all Americans, and because he was tenaciously devoted to finding ways to end slavery and because he treated those that he had nonetheless as well as he could in the circumstance. If others had followed the example of Washington, I think the great conflict that eventually came might have been avoided. At any rate, he did what he could, and I honor him. Thank you. Thank you.